Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engines so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. Our next investor conference is coming up, I think like three weeks away, the Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver on September 6th and 7th, 2023 at the Fairmont Waterfront, Vancouver. We've announced companies, sponsors, speakers. Some of those speakers include Dave Barr from Pender Fund, Harold Leishman, and Brent Todd from Canaccord, Ryan Irvin from Keystone Financial, Hamid Shabazi from WellHealth Technologies, and Paul Andriola from Small Cap Discoveries. Be sure to go on our website to learn more about the event, register and attend. Uh, the website is planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vancouver. My guest on the show today is Gary Mashuris, Managing Partner and CIO at Silver Ring Value Partners. As I've mentioned on every show leading up, we have our conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver, coming up on September 6th and 7th, 2023, planetmicrocapshowcase.com for more information. And it is a great opportunity for attendees to meet with microcap management teams and ask them questions. We've covered this topic quite often here on the show, but one, uh, we haven't in a while. And two, Gary's article, uh, which is the same title as uh, today's episode title, I think provides a solid framework checklist of questions that every investor could refer to when thinking about how they want to speak with management. My biggest takeaway that stuck with me is asking yourself the following. What are you trying to accomplish in your interaction with management? I think most folks go into these conversations and their goal is thinking they can get the CEOs to give them information that's either borderline or non-public altogether. Most management teams are wise to those tricks and will lose respect for you as an investor because they get the game that you're trying to play. But asking yourself, what are you trying to accomplish and establishing a goal, perhaps something along the lines of trying to build a relationship with the CEO or getting a feel of the CEO's values and then constructing questions around that, I think can help you immensely with getting the results that you're hoping for. There's even more quality insight from Gary. So hopefully you'll see this isn't just another how to talk to management episode. Thank you again for tuning into the Planet Microcap podcast and please enjoy my conversation with Gary Mershuris. Gary, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing, man? Good, of course. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you on here. I apologize. I, I'm, our episode should be sponsored by the T-Swift Eras Tour, the one thing that's uh, keeping our economy uh, uh, booming 
apparently, according to every article on Market Watch and CNBC. So, you know, uh, I listen. I didn't bring you on just to talk about that. I mean, unless you, you want, I'm not a Swifty by any means. But no, no, no. We'll, we'll 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 leave that for another day. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, you just published an article on LinkedIn that is probably one of, if not my favorite topic to talk about. Not just on Planet Microcap, but I have literally a whole series devoted to it, and that's interviewing company CEOs. Mm-hmm. Your article, the must ask question checklist every investor needs, and yeah, we've covered this extensively in on Planet Microcap, but. Each time I do an episode around this, there's always something that we can learn. There's always a new question, a new way in which we can talk about it. But before we get into the the nitty gritty of your article and your insight there, you know, it's been a while since you've been on the pod. I mean, how you doing? How's Silver Ring doing? Like, what's what's yeah. up? No, I think again, thank you for having me. I think, look, from an investing environment point of view, I think it's a tough environment for someone like me. Um, I haven't been buying. Uh, NVIDIA call options or anything like that. So that, you know, hasn't been my thing, nor is it going to be my thing. So for a long-term process-oriented value investor, I would say the opportunity set is pretty challenging. That's not to say there aren't any, but, you know, look, I used to be at a prior firm when whenever a prospective client would say housing opportunity set, they would also always say, great. Well, not me, like the senior person would say, amazing, you should give me money today. Well, you know, I always thought that's kind of a BS way of behaving and, I would rather, to be honest, you know, and right now, at least from through my lens, the opportunity set is not amazing at all. Um, I'm, you know, I wish I had more ideas is, you know, another way of saying it. But um, enough about me. I'm happy to dive into this uh, CEO because this is a good topic. And if you're a long-term investor like I am and, you know, listening to this podcast, I think, you know, thinking about management and thinking about how to glean the right information in the right way is super important to a long-term investor. So yeah, happy Absolutely. to dive in. 100%. Uh, and thank you for transitioning into diving into the article uh, for me on that. So here we go. Let, let's let's uh, let, let's do this. You know, to start off, I mean, from for you, you know, just high level for you, why is it so important to talk to management for you? And what is the main information that you are trying to get when you do speak directly with management? Yeah. Well, let me start with a little story in my background, because I think, you know, kind of, the, I wrote this article kind of for my younger self, <laughs> because, so I started in the industry 22 years ago. I started Fidelity Investments and right out of college. So I graduated MIT and, you know, I'm not on the paint with a broad brush, but MIT folk are not necessarily known for their eloquence and their kind of uh, social polish. So here I was, 21 years old. This is 2001. And unlike other shops, you at least at the time, I have no idea what's going on there now, but you were given your own little coverage. So you were given your own industry where you were the analyst on that small industry, right? You know, you weren't some associate bringing coffee or cranking Excel models. You were actually responsible for analyzing the industry, interviewing management, and, you know, coming up with the recommendations for portfolio managers. And and I was god-awful at that. No, uh, and I was just, you know, I was that guy who was very nervous, very self-conscious of being young and half to one third the age of the CEO I was interviewing. And they had to bear me because I was the fidelity analyst on their stock, right? You know, and I remember asking like these long-winded questions, well, you know, to, to show off how would I knew, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, would you agree? Or yeah, isn't that right? And there, I, I could almost see their eyes rolling and, you know, they were kind of, you know, uh, bear with me here. Um, and then there was this portfolio manager at Fidelity, and his name was Rich Fenton. And Rich 
was born in 1979. Sorry, born. I was born in 1979, but he started at Fidelity in 1979, the year I was born. So he was there for a long time, okay? And he was actually Peter Lynch's first assistant uh, on, the, on the, uh, the Magellan Fund, I believe. I uh, could be wrong, but I believe that's correct. And whenever I would do calls with Rich and other portfolio managers, Rich would be so good at asking questions. He would talk about baseball for like 45 seconds, you know, say, hey, how's your team? Oh, I saw the brow, uh, the, the chief, whatever, right? And then he would say, how's business? And then he would shut up. And they would tell him everything he needed to know. Maybe occasionally he would prompt one or two other questions, right? So here was Rich, a 20-plus year veteran, right? And, and ask, talking like this much, listening like this much, right? Uh, and he was getting all of the you know stuff he needed to get. And here was Gary, like talking and talking and talking and using up the 30-minute slot and doing a terrible job. So, you know, this is, uh, you know, now I'm 22 years later, you know, into my career. So I'm not perfect by any means, but I've had a few hundred CEO interviews, if not more, under my belt. And, you know, I, I wrote this to my younger self, but also I think to other people who are in this kind of situation where they honestly just don't know. There is no easy, you know, well-publicized manual for how to do it. So I thought it was good. It was on my behavioral value investor Substack and on LinkedIn. So uh, you can check out the whole article. But uh, happy to dive in. Yeah, well, details. But I think, like, to answer your question, I mean, what you're trying to get out of the conversation really depends on your style, right? And so I'm trying not to prejudge that because I'm trying out in writing this article. I want to focus on how to go about it as opposed to being doctrinaire about what your goal should be. So you you could be an early stage VC and you should be able to read this article and I think get something useful out of it. Or you could be a short-term investor, you know, which I'm not, but you might be. And I don't want to judge because, listen, there's many ways to success in the market and you should be able to get useful things from it. But what you're trying to get out of the interview is a function of your process. And I'll be happy to elaborate what I'm trying to get out of it. But how you go about it is kind of what the article is in big part about. A hundred percent. And, you know, just to hit on one thing you said from when you're thinking back on your younger self, because I've, I've noticed this also. You know, because one thing that we talk about a lot on here is like, okay, if you, when you go into that meeting with a CEO or with management or the chairman, whatever, you know, you want to, you don't want to just go in green. Like you want to, at a minimum, have some kind of basic understanding of the business, do some research and understand. But this is a, that's like the bare, bare minimum, right? Um, and I, sometimes I feel like you can also get caught up with like, you want to sh- also like prove to management in some ways, like, hey, I know the business. Hey, I know, I I know what, and so you know, don't be too hard on your twenty-one-year-old self. You know, you were, you know, trying to probably also trying to prove yourself in some respects of like, hey, I understand what is going on here, you know, and to prove to them that like, hey, I am worth you spending this half hour or forty-five minutes with me because I I did my work, man. Like, I'm not just you know sitting here, you know, having having to be here. I think that's right. I think also, look, most of us are not at Fidelity or a shop where essentially the CEO almost has to speak with you. Right. right? And so, I mean, I, in that article, I spoke about kind of what, what are you trying to accomplish? And it's not just getting information, right? One of those things is to establish yourself, build a reputation with a CEO or someone who is thoughtful. And why do you want to do that? Not because you're trying to befriend them and be buddies with them, but because that might allow you 
know, follow-up calls. It might allow you access to other division heads or other things, or the person might just be kind and share their insights in the industry on suppliers and competitors and customers that might allow you to do current or future scalabot research separate from this company, right? And so I think just kind of the goodwill of the CEO, which, you know, there are many ways to do it, but I mean, you know, you don't need to be like obnoxious and flatter them, you know, about how beautiful their tie is. You can do it by respecting their time and showing that you're prepared. And, you know, a couple of quick stories because, well, two, you know, one, you know, when other fidelity, Will Danoff, uh, who runs the Contra Fund, was always a terrific portfolio manager guests and meetings. And, you know, like when you're a young analyst, you don't know, who people are, who is good, who is not. And Willwood was famous for coming in a meeting, his hair looking all crazy, with a stack of papers, and he would, you know, usually 10 minutes late, five, 10 minutes late, and he would, you know, interrupt me and say, go through his papers, like, what do you guys do again? And I would be so embarrassed, right, as the analyst. But then I got it. He, of course, he's super sharp. He, you know, he, of course, he knows what they did again. He didn't, you know, randomly walk into a random conference room. He was there for a reason. He was trying to go back to basics and zoom out and get just a very high-level update on what the management thinks, that, what the company is. And there was one time where essentially the CEO started answering the question. And he said, okay, but John said so-and-so. And it's just like, well, I apologize, but John's passed away. You know? Yeah, that's fine. But 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 John said, you know, right? And so, like, uh, you know, he wanted to make sure that the story was the same or understand how it changed. So that was kind of story number one. Story number two is, at, a long time ago, I was part of a roaming band of small cap investors, right? And I wasn't the organizers, but they were really nice guys. And they invited me to join on these, like, visit three, four small caps in a day, just, you know, do a, the, the trip. And there was almost zero preparation, Right. You know, I felt like nobody was prepared. It was just basically, hey, you know, we're going to learn, you know, as we go along. And I get that because they were like, we don't even know if we want to invest in learning the company. Um, I just go and meet with them. And from the vibe and the information we get in that hour, then we'll decide later. So they'll, they'll walk in and say, hey, you know, tell us about your business. Kind of like that. And I found that while that might be the right approach for many, like just for me, it just didn't work. I got nothing out of those meetings. I just wanted to like browse on my Blackberry at the time. I'm dating myself. Um, and I'm like, why am I even here? This company sucks. Like I, if I'd spent 10 minutes skimming through the annual reports, looking at the numbers, I wouldn't even be here. You know, like not in all cases, but in some cases, right? So I think there's many approaches. And again, you have to figure out like what works for you. Absolutely. Well, I mean, not to jump around, but like the main, one of the things that I thought like I took away from your article that I think is probably something I learned the most is, is, you know, really what you're trying to accomplish when you're with a CEO, because, you know, I think that can always get misconstrued even when we talk about it on here, even when I, you know, interview CEOs as well is that, you know, are we trying, are, you know, are we trying to get like little tidbits of information that maybe aren't in the press release or aren't in the Q's and K's like that, that like, for one, that's not what I'm trying to do. I know that, but I've never been, but I haven't put into words how you did so eloquently where you say here, you know, you're trying to, you are trying to get a feel for the CEO's values and the company's culture mm -hmm. and the intangible attributes of the team that don't come through purely in the numbers. Like that point right there, I think is probably, if there is one takeaway for why you need to be talking with management teams, it's that because you're not going to get something different 
that they can't publicly talk about because they can get in trouble for that. So don't expect anything like that. But if your goal is to get something, get that out of it at a minimum, that is, that's, that's where you win. Yeah. I mean, and by the way, I mean, there's more, but yeah, no, no. I love that point. The year I entered the business 2001 was the year reg of D was passed, which is for the you know regulation of fair disclosure, foolish thing, fair disclosure, which basically says the company can't tell one investor that's something that's material that you know it hasn't disclosed to all you know, investors through a filing or through public disclosure. Before that, you know, people at big firms, you know, used it was called dialing for dollars, right? People would totally call the CFO and say, "How's the quarter? Are you going to beat numbers?" Now, when Reg of D was passed. There's people still do that, by the way. You know, I'm sure it's happening this moment. Like someone is talking to a CFO instead of saying, Are you going to beat the quarter? They're looking for clues, body language, you know, uh, sentiment, tone, whatever, you know. And I would have to say that any CEO or CFO that I would respect has got to hate those people, not on an individual as human beings, but like, man, you're taking my time to try to get weekly and monthly trends. You're such a waste of my time. Please, like, don't call me again. That, that would be any self-respecting CEO who who's thinking about managing a business should res- be thinking that. Now, there are people who aren't. They love manipulating markets. They want to get their stock up because their options expiring. Whatever. But those aren't people you want to be in partnership with anyway. So I think while there are a lot of people who do still dial for dollars, just try to stay within the letter of the law. I would honestly recommend unless you're really a short-term trader you stay away from talking about short-term trends and i think one of the ways i get calls uh i don't work for fidelity i have my own firm you know it's a small firm but i say up front two things i'm a long-term investor and i'm not going to ask you about the quarter right you know so i kind of make them feel at ease i say oh i, I don't short i'm not going to ask you about the quarter and you know i tell them a few things about myself but that but other than that i think the key people I want to talk to are relieved to know this is not going to be one of those. Hey, and in August, the first couple of weeks, were they slightly better than July? You know, would you say, would you give me a, you know, a wink, you know, if uh, Twitch, you know, like, come on, really? Grow up, you know. No, sorry, yeah. I, I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings who's listening, but yeah, grow up if you're doing, if you're no, doing that. I don't think you should, no, there's no apologies necessary. I mean, I, at the end of the day, like, it is just a waste of it. It's a waste of energy. Like they, yeah. and also like at the, from the CEO's perspective, it's like, yeah, no, look, uh, we publish, uh, you know, we put out our cues and uh, on this date, and yeah, you'll just see for yourself. You know, like, uh, <laughs> like how is, as a CEO are you supposed to respond to that? Because you can't, right. re- you can't really respond any other way. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, right. well, back we, to what you're trying could. to accomplish and, and like the the yeah. soft things that you should be looking for. I think is look, you know. And I don't have data to prove this, but my strong sense of over two decades of investing is that the people, first of all, you don't become the CEO by being the most like self-deprecating person or the humblest of people, right? You need to have a certain amount of self-confidence because at one point you have to like edge out some other competitor for the job or something like that. So there's going to be a natural selection bias that the people you're talking to are confident in themselves and they should be, hopefully, hopefully as deserved. But I find it always to be a really positive sign when that confidence is kind of balanced with humility. And one way of observing that is they're giving you some negative information about the company. You know, and it's not like, you know, in an interview, like, what's your biggest flaw? It's like, I work too hard. Not like some straw man that's meant to 
check the box, but they're they're honest about challenges. Yeah. So like one of the questions I have, you know, I'm just pulling up the Substack article here is, you know, who is your toughest competitor and what makes him the toughest? And if they say, no, we're the biggest, we're the bushiest, you know, nobody comes even close to us. Like we're, we're... and then you look at their returns and they have 8% return cap, right? That, 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 I think that either they're delusional, they're just, you know, like to brag with no big, you know, the, it, right there and there, you learned a ton about the management, you know, versus like a better answer might be, listen, we do have an edge here, but there's another competitor or two that they have something we don't have. And here's how we're mitigating that or trying to create that or trying to focus on a customer segment where that's not important, right? But that kind of an answer shows two things. One is there, there's some honesty involved in the conversation, uh, even if it's not to their advantage. Number two is, they're kind of aware of challenges and they have a plan to address them, which is good because all businesses face challenges, right? You know, um, the, the question is, do you as the investor know them and does the CEO know them and is doing something about it? So like, that's the kind of thing that I think when I, you know, when we listen to conference call replays or read the transcripts from earnings calls, you're not going to get as much from, you know, that because a lot of times the questions are softballs or they're about how the, quarter trended intra-quarter, how the quarter is trending after the end of the quarter, like 40 to 60% of a usual conference call is completely useless to a long-term investor. And occasionally there'll be a nugget here or there, but anyway. No, that actually inspires me when it comes to the, the interviews that I do with management here, because one question I usually always ask management teams is, you know, what, in your opinion, what would you say are the company's downside risks? And, you know, that's a, that's a, it's it's a question that I think I, I like because some, you know, you can learn a lot about management from that answer. You know, I've had a couple that have said, you know, we don't see any downside risk here. Like this is all upside. Buy now and all upside. Like everything's gonna be great. You know, but but one thing I've noticed and I've been thinking about adjusting it is because one one thing that almost everyone says is, well, there's always execution risk. It's like, oh, okay, like obviously, right. like you know, and so. When it's just execution risk, it's like, okay, well, is that, am I really learning anything from that question? Right. And I think a better way of asking that, that I'll probably do from now on is like, well, what would you say are the company's challenges, the real challenges? And how are you trying to allay some of those, um, some of those challenges or how are you addressing them? You know, I think that would probably be a better way of doing it. Yeah, that's a good question. And as I wrote the article, I think as, as long as you're sticking to short, how and what questions right that's it's hard to go terribly wrong yeah uh because i think a lot of times they're non-threatening and they're open-ended now you have to be careful someone's going to filibuster you and take a 45 minute slot or whatever and basically go on the rampage you have to be kind of a gentleman bulldog or a lady bulldog and say listen i i'm totally into this and you what you're saying is terrific but i want to be respectful of your time and there's a few other things i want to get to can we come back to that or something right just to kind of stop them from filibustering on their pet you know answer and not actually getting to some things i mean another thing like from a culture point of view right people talk about culture right well this culture anyway like you know like you know whenever you know sometimes people so much talk about culture it feels like they're eating yogurt you know you know there's a lot of culture but I find like the question that helps me is, you know, tell me about some non-financial ways you're trying to motivate your employees, right? You know, what is, or what are some non-financial ways that you're trying to, you know, I'll give you an example. So there's a, a company I used to follow, it's still around called Ecolab. 
ECL is the I don't own it. You know, I'm not recommending it. Uh, it's just from a, I used to follow it as an analyst and they used to give their, it was a very sales driven company and uh, they used to give their top salespeople a leather jacket. And that leather jacket might be worth $50, $100, right? It, the, the financial value of that was de minimis. But these were alpha males, most they were mostly guys, and they were super competitive. And the value of showing the other alpha males that, no, I am the alpha male, look at my jacket, I was a top salesperson for month, quarter, whatever, that had such a huge ROI on that and it's such a keen understanding of what motivated these people, right? You know, so that's one example. Another I'll give you, you know, again, don't own it. It actually doesn't, it's no longer public got acquired. There was a company called Valspar. They had industrial coatings and they were trying, uh, they were trying to inspire plant managers to care about working capital, right? So they, on their business cards, would put various gold three dimensional kind of awards for different categories. And one of them would be inventory management or something like that. So when you go to the, you know, the hot, the working, you know, the plant manager get together once a year and you give your card to the other guy. He sees like you have two gold stamps. Oh, you're the man, right? So these like little clever ways to create rewards, um, you know, tells you management is thinking about motivating behavior. It's, and it's not all about just hanging a bunch of money bags and hope that that's enough. Absolutely. And I think that's some incredible insight in terms of asking about culture, because that's definitely, I, I don't even really ask it in on, on the due diligence because it's like, all right, how do I, one, it's like, okay, how, you know, what is the company's culture? You know, how do you inspire to have, you know, a place that people want to work at? And then they could say something beautiful and glossy, and then you go on Glassdoor and it's like, we absolutely friggin' hate it here or something like, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? But yet you put it out on, our, you know, right. interviews already out there, you know? So that, that's a tough one. It's tough. It's tough being able to like glean from them, like on culture side, like there's like, like learning about the CEO, you can, you, like you can get some things, but culture side, that one's, that one's hard. Well, I think the question that I find informative is how do you deal with your B players? Mm, okay. Because so think about an organization, right? Um, any industry, right? There's the the stars, the people who are doing really well, and there is the problem people, the people who like on perform, you know, performance improvement plans or whatever, and the, or people like, and then there is the the B players. They're okay, right? And I think any manager who hasn't thought about this is just like not doing their job. And there are some cultures, right? Think about like the tech. Silicon Valley cultures, where their whole idea is to only have the A players, right? B players gets you fired, essentially, right? And there's a whole uh, there's a bunch of books about this uh, where they talk about cult, you know, and but that defines a culture because they figured out that A players want to work with other A players. They do not want to work, you know. I don't know when I was in college, right? When someone is like, you know free riding on your work on the group project, you know, if you were the A player, at some point you get tired, you're like, listen, man, WTF, listen, why don't you do some work, you know, right? Um, but, you know, you can't say it to a B player because they are doing some work. They're just not that great. They're not terrible. You know, like, okay, right? And so essentially most cultures just have mostly B players, right? And they'll have a few sprinkling of stars and some problems that they're trying to solve, right? But if, so... It, that's the answer you should expect from most companies, but occasionally you'll come in and say, you know what, we actually transition them out pretty quickly. 
or they can't survive because X, Y, and Z would happen if they were a B player, right? And so I think that informs you. So if you if you don't get anything informative, that means that it's a normal bell curve with mostly B players. But if you hear something different, then your you know ears should perk up and like, okay, this is a little bit different. I'm gonna you know, follow up on that. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, in, in the same article you put in, you know, the quite the actual questions that you like to ask mm -hmm. companies, um, as well as the customers, suppliers, business mm -hmm. economics, capital allocation. I mean, these mm -hmm. are these are great questions that definitely I'll put the link to this article in the in the show notes and whatnot. You know, of all the questions and all the topics that you want to cover with management, you know, like you said, sometimes you don't have that much time, you know, a half hour. Right. I mean, I, I run investor conferences. That half hour goes quick, right? Yeah. And they they sometimes get stuck on one or two questions and that's it. You know, so for those that, you know, you may not have that much time with the CEO, what would you say is the one question, one topic that, at least for you, is the most important that you that you want to try and get out of that in the amount, and if you only have that short amount of time. Yeah, I would definitely start with competitive advantage and how does how they're planning on executing around that for the next three to five years. Because that, while that can just be an invitation for them to just talk and give their prepared bullet points, if if they're not addressing the substance, yeah, you know, right, uh, then you know that they don't probably don't have a competitive advantage or don't know what it is and. You know, I think to the degree. So I think that, you know, like your strategy should be around your competitive advantage, right? You know, like if you or around building a competitive advantage or expanding a competitive, right? That, 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 right. So if you're not aware of your competitive advantage or you're not can't articulate how your strategy uh, kind of works with that, that's super important. And I think again, in a thirty minute meeting, that answer could be a fifteen minute answer right there and then, and that's fine if it's a good answer. If it's a you know, if it's like our people, our edge, it's like, well, unless you can demonstrate that and, you, you know, I don't know, some some tangible way, in the, and that's probably true for like 1% of companies, if that, the rest, I mean, have the same people from the same, you know, right? You know, <laughs> they're not the edge. I mean, there's our best assets, work that, walk down the elevator. Okay, fine. Tell us something unique that makes you different, that allows you to earn excess returns, that allows you to blah, blah, right? And then the other question I would say is, the capital allocation framework question and and then ask them to tie it to their his, how they historically executed that because um so one thing that i didn't put in an article but it's worth noting is you're trying to separate people who are thinking about its industry standard right you know so it's industry standard to talk about to give certain cliche answers um versus first principles thinkers right so um, like the industry standard answers might be, you know, for capital allocation, well, we have a dividend policy, we consider the board and we buy back stock to, to offset a stock option, uh, you know, creep or whatever, right. You know, and uh, we consider acquisition, you know, right. And that's kind of a boilerplate generic answer that could be true for any company. What you're looking is when answering that question is two things. One, you're trying to look for, is this, uh, you know, answer specific to this company and uh, and unique like think about some better cat like a danaher or, or a roper whatever you know or or a you know a share cannibal right an AutoZone, right these are companies that are doing things differently in like the first two cases they're acquiring assets they have a, that's part of their strategy they have criteria that's the main outlet for their free cash flow 
in the case of like a, a share cannibal in AutoZone, they're like, hey, no, we deploy all our capital to buy back as many shares as we can, right? Um, those are different answers than the standard balance scorecard, some dividends, some share buybacks. And then by asking them to tie it back to um, their actual historical actions, you're kind of laying bare their, their true beliefs, right? So if you look at data, almost every company buys back stock when it's high and slows down or eliminates the buyback when it's low. Why? Because people are human. And when it's scary, you, the investor, is not the only one who's scared. So is the CEO, right? And the board, right? And the cover your ass mentality is, let's wait for better business visibility and then we'll buy, buy back more shares, which is common investor mentality, right? Let's wait for a catalyst, right? They're all the same as you, except they're inside. Yes, they know how business is trending, but they're still scared, right? And what you're looking for is the outliers, number one. But also the other thing I've come to realize over my two plus decades in the business is, Cheap only works under certain circumstances, right? As an investor, let's say you have a cheap stock, whatever is it, seven, eight times free cash flow, cheap, right? And let's say it's not declining, you know, because like, why would the stock be at seven, eight times free cash flow? Maybe it's a declining stream, melting ice cube, but that's not, that's not the case. Well, if a management takes a dollar of their free cash flow and turns it into 50 or 60 or 70 cents, then that valuation could very well be realized, right? Or if the management is unwilling to be its own catalyst in, in, in the face of an obscenely kind of undervalued equity, even with a healthy balance sheet, then maybe the price to value gap will close. But remember, like at least in the smaller stocks where, you know, I don't spend my time exclusively on smaller stocks, but I certainly it's a big part of my hunting ground. Um, this whole like dichotomy in the market is you have you know, indices, right? There are bigger and bigger components, right? And there's more and more flows going to indices. And then there are these more and more orphan smaller companies that are less followed where there's less flows. And so you can make an argument that they're going to be less efficiently priced. And if the price to value gap, you know, used to close on its own for some of these companies, right, in a reasonably fast amount of time, that's less of a case now, I think. So you kind of want to make sure that if you're going to get involved with a company that at least management is going to help close that gap directionally through thoughtful capital allocation. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, in going through the article and, and looking and thinking about it a bit further, you know, it, and I, and I say this with all due respect, but it, it also feels like, you know, this is, this is great stuff for, you know, maybe that first second interaction with management, like build, build, like when you're yep. just, First meeting them, building that that relationship. So let's take it all. Let's maybe take the article a step further from the perspective of like, okay, let's let's use this scenario. Let's say you you've had a couple conversations. Let's say maybe you took a starter position. You're looking to kind of build that position out over time. But now that you own, you know, you're an owner in the business. Now you okay. I'm monitoring much closer maybe than I was before of like certain things that the company is doing or things that management has said, and maybe it's things I don't really like, you know, in your opinion, how can, what, what's the best way to have a conversation with management, be critical without being accusatory? Yeah. So, I, well, so first of all, again, it has to do with your process. If your process is to be an activist and that, and there is an, or else, and you own 10% and you're going to nominate a board slate, the conversation oh, probably should be different right. than if you, 
are not intending to do that. And so let's take it that off the table because, you know, uh, let's say that you're trying to understand, you know, the management, let's say there were some actions you didn't understand in the context of prior discussions, right? And so you don't just have to say, listen, you know, we talked six months ago and here is what my notes say, you know, and here's what I observed. So maybe just how does what you did, you know, reconcile what we talked about as the plan, what made you change your, your, your plan going forward? And then just listen. And I don't think your job is to argue with management, you know, because agree again, if, now, if you have a what else or you have, uh, or there is a credible threat, then sure. Um, and, you know, I would say in my, so, so uh, Star Silver, Silvering seven years ago, I had one 13D activist situation. And, and I'm not going to mention the ticker, but the situation was as follows. You know, they changed CEOs and a big portion of my thesis was there was a lot of excess cash and that was a source of downside protection for the thesis, right? And this new CEO said, we're going to do some acquisitions. And I'm like, oh, no. You're going to throw away my cash, and now my downside protection is going to evaporate potentially. I didn't sign up for that. And I happen to own a fair amount, or percentage-wise, of the shares. And at first, I listened, and I was told how amazing that's going to be. And, you know, but like, come on, really? Like, we know how, you know, the base rates of acquisitions are bad. And, you know, some micro-cap CEO is not necessarily an immediate candidate to overcome those base rates, right? So so I said, listen, okay, I hear you, but meaningful shareholder. And yeah, I kind of, kind of talked to the chairman of the board, just, you know, get, you know like I talked to the chairman, the chairman was gung-ho about this acquisition. You know, like, oh, this, I said, listen, I don't think you should be doing this. I think that, I don't think your investors expect you to do that. I don't think you've built the credibility to do this. I think that you should be if uh, doing one of two things, either you know, buying back a lot of your shares, but if you don't want to do that, I think that you know, another fellow just sell the company. You have a business at subscale that could be more valuable in someone else's hands, but at the very minimum, please do not touch the cash. It's not your cash; it's our cash, right? And you know, and the CEO basically, uh, you know, not in so many words, let me know that he was wise and didn't need my counsel. The chairman, you know shared his thoughts on how you know experienced and worldly he was so I said, okay you know and so i, I, talk, I said like i got lawyers and i followed 13d and i said all right let's go because i don't think you have the support for this i don't think people want you to do it and i don't think what you're doing makes actual sense you know and i didn't get on the board which kind of was my my main goal was don't touch the cash but i didn't do any acquisitions right so like but that process, that's not an enjoyable process for me. Like, you know, there's some guys that wake up and they want to get on CNBC and they want to badmouth some CEO or whatever. Like, I'm not, we, I'm waking up and I want to do some bonsai pruning on my bonsai trees, you know, right? Or, you know, read, you know, something thoughtful or whatever. I'm not looking to pick a fight. But, you know, if someone is going to come at me and basically threaten my mind, my partner's worth, net worth by potentially devaluing the business that we invested in on a very different set of assumptions, I'm going to stand up for our rights. And so I think that for most people, if you're not going to do that, just listen. And if you come to the conclusion that this person either dishonest, don't know what they're doing, or frankly, are delusional about the reality of the situation or their own abilities, Unfortunately, your main kind of avenue is, you know, walking away. 
That is such great advice, man. No, I mean, I, I, look, this is everything that you just said in that anecdote, if you know, is that, um, I mean, that's why, that's why it's so important to have a relationship with management. No one's saying you got to be their best friend. No one's saying that, you know, you got to cozy up to them just so that you can get like, as long, I think every CEO I've ever interviewed had interaction with, you know, as long as an investor is respectful of their time, ask respectful questions. It's just, it's coming from a place of respect, even if they're going to go critical because of maybe a miscommunication or maybe the thesis has changed or something has changed from a previous conversation to where the company is now. As long as you're coming from a place of respect and just, you know, not trying to get them or call them out, like you're you're going to get the kind of differential insights that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And I think looking Bottom when you asked like, second and third uh, conversations, it's almost kind of when you first said that just now, I'm like, oh, great idea for the next article. I'm like, the problem is it's so specific to the situation and your process. And I think you're monitoring change, right? What's changed? And that's going back to Will Danoff and the stack of papers and what do you guys do again? Now, Will is talking to, hundred, you know, 10 companies a day times 360. So everyone's style is a little different. But I think in general, like understanding positive and negative change. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, I know we're coming towards the end, but like I was thinking about selling and how I'm not a great seller, right? Oh, and then this thought came to my mind. I've never, I can't think of making a mistake selling a company whose fundamentals became worse. It never happened to me in 22 years. Now, you know, and the temptation for value people, you know, in the tribe is, you know, as fundamentals uh, get worse, is for them to, is to say, well, the, pri the price is lower probably, right? You know, uh, and just, yeah, well, it's cheap, right? And maybe I'll end with this one example because it has to do with management. So there, were, there was a Canadian company, won't say the name, I uh, don't own it. Uh, but my prior firm, uh, we owned it and it was owned by this, uh, well, managed by these two brothers who owned a good chunk of it. They had like, uh, it was like a billion dollar market cap or something like that. And they had a hundred million between the two of them. And that kind of made me think that, uh, you know, incentives were aligned. Right. And then on one call, they announced that they spent a hundred million or so of the company's money, which was like 10% of the market cap on buying this Chinese company out of nowhere because they felt like they had the weakness in manufacturing in China. And so they decided to buy this company. And they were asked on this call, like, well, how do you think about what's your return on invested capital will be? And they said, listen, we just haven't thought about that. We just needed to buy the, the, this capability. And I wasn't the questioner, but I got off the call. I remember walking into one of, I was a portfolio manager on a focused value strategy. And I remember walking into an analyst's office and said, I'm like so conflicted. It's cheap. I mean, it, wait, wait, I bought a six times earnings and free cash flow. It was still at six or seven times earnings and free cash flow. I have a really hard time selling companies six times free cash flow, right? It's just hard, you know. And they had, I thought, some moderate competitive advantage. They had some, you know, like it wasn't a shit company, forgive me, in French. Um, at least I didn't think it was. Um, and, but that, com like, that comment, like, we spent 10% of the market cap and we haven't even thought about what the returns might be. In some ways, it was really helpful uh, that they were honest. You know, a more polished CEO would have come up with some bullshit, you know, you know, PowerPoint answer of you know what the investment bankers you know said or whatever. But 
I sold. And I look back, I was looking at it, it was a $22 stock. It, I saw it, it was $4 the other day, right? And, you know, yes, I'm doing a little bit of this, but only because I, I get my sales right so rarely. You know, usually the, my pattern is I sell something because it's expensive and then it doubles from there. And I sit there and saying, I'm such an idiot. You know, why did I sell? Or was I an idiot? Was I just, you know, right? I mean, and you're sitting there kind of like trying to be introspective about was your process right? Was your process wrong? But here it's like crystal clear example where management revealed themselves to be poor stewards of capital. They're not thinking about returns. Doesn't matter if it's cheap because like you're not getting the cash back, right? And you don't know how they're going to spend it. Anyway. That's, that was kind of a great anecdote to end. Uh, I mean, because, yeah, I think I want to point everybody to the article. It's a great piece. It's a very, it's just, it, if, if you've never written down the types of questions that you do, do want to ask management or, you know, you want to just better your process or kind of go back to basics on like, all right, well, what, what are my main motivations for why I want to talk to management? I would go check this article out. It's really fantastic. You know, so Gary, Final thoughts, you know, um, hey, listen, I, you know, not to be self-serving or anything, I'm doing a, I'm doing an investor conference in about a month uh, in, in Vancouver, Planet Microcap Showcase, September 6th and 7th. You know, there's going to be investors there going to meet with management teams. You know, I mean, what are some of your final thoughts on the differences in the types, in, for you, when it comes to, no matter what the market cap is for a company, do your questions adjust? You know, or does your thought pattern change at all? Or is everything that you put in this article work for any ask, any company at any stage of its of its cycle? Obviously, you know, assuming you know, well, assuming it's a first interaction, I would assuming. say it works because I think like, you know, this whole so what's the difference in a micro cap and a mega cap, right? You know, the CEO has more direct involvement and more of the company, right? So they should know more minutiae. They should know they should like be more, you know, involved in execution of things. Uh, you know, there is a should be a flatter organization, right? Uh, I mean, they probably should be in one or maybe it's most two businesses. You know, usually, right? They shouldn't have seven divisions. Sometimes they do. Um, but I think most of it, it's like, you know. Like people are people, companies are companies. They have, you know, they have cash flows, they have advantages, they lack advantages, they have balance sheets. So I think going through that um, and thinking about, you know, the key issues is a great way to start. And then, then zoom in. And I, I would leave you with this. I think if anything, one of, so why are micro caps more inefficient? One is obviously liquidity, right? Um, you know, then there's also perceived and sometimes correctly perceived fragility of the business, right? You know, most micro caps are somewhat more fragile than Visa, Google, Master, you know, whatever, Microsoft, right? Um, but the but there's also you're just gonna get a less polished answer most of the time, and you're gonna get a sense: is this person for real? And I, I I'm a very process oriented guy. I have this owner's manual where I, like I'm in depth in my process, and all my partners and prospective partners read it. I hope they at least look at it, um, but I would say if you experience enough, at some point you'll have to trust your gut. Like if you if you're getting the creeps listening to a person, like just move on. And on the other hand, like if you find yourself saying, okay, you know, this this is a little different. I've met with a hundred microcap CEOs, and these three, four, they just a little different. You know, different is not always great, but at the very least, you know that they're not in that fat part of the bell curve and you know, 
different that probably is uh, good in this case. Very good. I think that's a perfect place to end it. Gary, where can our audience go and follow you, subscribe to your newsletter, as well as, uh, I think, I think are you on Twitter? I don't know if you're on Twitter, but... Uh, I am the last person on Twitter, so I... Or know, X, I, sorry. I am not X, Max. I'm not there. You know, I know you try to convince me. You, you're you not the only one. I, uh, I'm cool. I, I, I don't, I'm not a bird. I'm not going to tweet. I'm, uh, I'm a, I know I'm, in, I'm the minority of one, but whatever, you know. Uh, it's my own, you know, men- mental flaws. Uh, but I, you know, so I write on Substack. Uh, it's weekly articles. Um, I don't spam people. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not selling some core. I don't have any, I don't have anything to sell. Um, I enjoy writing. You know, I also find it crystallizes my thoughts. So it's behavioral value investor dot Substack dot com. Uh, you know, I'm sure you'll put a link in there. So that's probably the best. I'm also on LinkedIn. If you want to connect, I write. You know, I also publish some of those articles on LinkedIn as well. So happy to connect in, in either location. Perfect. All right, dude. Well, with that, Gary, thank you so much for joining me today. I really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And I look forward to our next chat. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.